And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. All right, just a little intro to the book of Romans, which uh, we'll be going through here for a little while. Um, I asked in the first service if anybody knows why Romans is where it's at. It follows the book of Acts, right? You got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Why Romans? Huh? <laughs> no, Paul wasn't in Rome. Paul eventually would go to Rome. He's writing this letter actually from Corinth. He has not gone to Rome. The reason it's there is the same reason that you have books arranged the way they are in the Old Testament. And it has to do with length. All right, do you know what are the four major prophets that we consider? And this, this is the way they're in the Bible too. Isaiah, Jeremiah, well, Jer- yeah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations belongs to Jeremiah. It's not as long. But you got uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. All right, 66 chapters, Isaiah, 52, uh, Jeremiah, 48, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. That's the way it hits. I don't know why they did that, but that's the why they arranged it this way. It's Paul's longest letter, uh, 16 chapters. And it's full of a bunch of good stuff. And from there on, they just get shorter and shorter all the way. I think Titus is his last one. Um, so anyway, or is it Philemon? Yeah, Philemon, which is the shortest one chapter. So anyway, that's just a little uh, trivia for you. If you want to know why Romans is there, it's because it's Paul's, we're getting into his material now, his letters, and it is the longest. Now, it's going to take us a while to get, to, get through this, uh, and that's okay. Over the years, I've kind of shied away from the book of Romans simply because it is the Mount Everest of Christian theology. Uh, Augustine, Martin Luther, and Charles Wesley, they all credit Paul's letter to the Romans as the means God used to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Now, while much is quite clear in the book of Romans, quite a few areas are still highly debated among scholars, and we'll try tackling those when we get to them. Uh, I want to go ahead and knock out some of what would be considered cursory items that you would see in almost any introduction. Paul claims to be the writer very from the beginning, and that has not been disputed in church history. Paul wrote Romans between A.D. 56 and A.D. 58 uh, from Corinth on his third missionary journey. So in terms of his... Uh, other writings, this is a rather late writing, okay? But it also, as I mentioned, is the longest. And he's writing to the Christians in Rome, to the church at Rome. And Paul has never been there. He has several reasons for writing them. First, he wanted to evangelize Spain. Now, I messed this up in the first service. Let's see if I can get it right now. Paul is over in the Mediterranean area. Rome is up here. Spain is over here. He's looking for a church to sponsor him uh, as he goes to Spain. And Rome is not that far from Spain, if you look on the map, all right? So that's one reason he's doing it. Uh, He's preparing the Roman church for the day when he would reveal his vision to them. He's making them familiar with his name, with his mission, and of course, with his love. Second, Paul had a personal compulsion to visit and to witness in Rome itself. Rome was kind of the capital, the center of the world. Uh, It it provided the greatest strategic opportunity for world evangelism. Think about it. A Rome conquered for Christ 
could be a world conquered for Christ. Well, third, Paul wasn't sure that he would ever reach Rome personally. He'd never been there. And where he's, when he's writing this, he tells us that he's headed to deliver the offering to the saints in Jerusalem. So he's got to go to Jerusalem again. And there's a chance that he might be killed in Jerusalem, and he knows it. Despite the danger, Paul is an incredible strategist, strategist, excuse me, and he knew the great importance of Rome for the spread of the gospel worldwide. Now, the message of the letter is what, what Paul would hammer into the believer's hearts if he ever did make it there personally. In a sense, Romans is the church's last testament. It's just what the church needs to hear. Romans comes closest to being the one written possession that a church needs. It's the most comprehensive statement of Christian truth. Now, these first seven verses make up the, the greeting or the introduction of the letter. Uh, of Paul's 13 epistles, this is the longest uh, by a long shot. And it does follow a pattern that you see throughout the New Testament that was popular in letters at that time. So there's nothing odd about that. The question I want you to consider this morning is, how much of what was in Paul is in you? We're going to see an awful lot. This is really a hard passage to cover in one sermon. You're going to get a lot of information, okay? We're going to learn a lot about Paul and what Paul says about believers, what Paul says about the gospel. So my question is, throughout all of this, through the morning, I want you to be thinking, how much of what was in Paul is in you? Let's pray. Father, uh, we just thank you so much for your abundant love, for all the mercy and the grace that we have because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we come this morning just to bow the knee and, and to acknowledge that we need the help of your Holy Spirit. Father, we can read this passage 50 times and not take away anything from it. Uh, we need the help of your Spirit to speak that truth into our hearts. Pray that it would be a truth that would transform us, that it would not only inform us, but it would transform us, Father, so that when we leave here today, we would look more like your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask that you do it for your honor and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I got five major points this morning. Uh, number one, after his name, the first thing that Paul tells us about himself is that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word for servant is doulos. And doulos literally means slave. Now, when, when you say that word slave, it conjures up all kinds of images associated with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery in 19th century America. We all have visions of when we say that word slave, but slavery in the Bible uh, was not the same as slavery in modern times. In the Old Testament, you could actually enter slavery voluntarily to escape poverty, right? You're having a hard time making it. You can become a slave. You'll do their work, but they'll take care of you, okay? So voluntarily. Uh, you, could, you could enter slavery to pay off a debt. I owe too much. Can I work it off? Might be that take. You could also be a slave involuntarily by birth or by being captured in battle. You might become a slave or by judicial sentence, now, here are some realities from Paul's day concerning slaves. A, the slave was owned by the master. He was possessed. He was, he was the master's possession. Well, Paul was purchased and possessed by Christ. Christ loved him and bought him. And he now belonged to Christ. Well, B, the slave existed for his master. He, he had no personal rights. 
Well, the same was true for Paul. He existed only for Christ. We'll see, the slave's purpose was to serve the master. He was at the master's disposal 24-7. So it was for Paul. He served Christ hour by hour, day by day, night by night. Well, D, the slave's will belonged to the master. He was completely subservient to the master, and he owed total obedience to the will of the master. Well, think about Paul's goal. It was to be obedient to the call that Christ put on his life as a slave. Well, E, there's one more thing that Paul meant by calling himself a slave of Christ. He meant that he had the highest and most honored profession in all of the world. Godly men have always been known as servants of God, slaves of God. Moses, Joshua, David, the prophets, many we mentioned a minute ago, Paul, James, the half-brother of Jesus, Peter, and Jude were all called slaves of God. Now, one frequent title for the Messiah in the Old Testament is the servant of the Lord. Believers are said to be slaves of God. Uh, Paul is going to really get in this in the last half of chapter 6. And you're, you're going to come away from that last half of chapter 6 saying, there's no such thing as freedom. <laughs> Paul says you're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. You're a slave whether you know it or not. All right, so we'll get to that in a few months or whenever the Lord allows. No person is a true follower of Jesus Christ unless he is enslaved by Christ. Now, that's the shocking message that Paul wants to get across to the believers here in Rome. So I ask you, are you a slave of Christ? Does he own you? Are you his possession to do what he desires? Number two, Paul was an apostle. Now, we're familiar with that word, right? It's a person who was sent out, somebody that is sent forth. An apostle is a representative, an ambassador that is, is sent out to a country from another country to represent them. Now, three, three, three things are generally true of an apostle. He belongs to the one who sent him out. He's commissioned by the one who sent him out. And he has all authority and power of the one who sent him out. I want you to know three, note three particular things about Paul's apostleship. A, he was called to be an apostle. Paul didn't choose himself. He didn't go, you think, say, you know, I think I'm going to just be an apostle. It wasn't because he had some special ability, although Paul did have some special abilities. He, he wasn't encouraged by others. You know, nobody was saying, Paul, you, you really ought to go for that apostleship. No. There's only one reason that Paul became an apostle, and it's because God called him to it. And of course, B, Paul heard and answered God's call. When Jesus, you know, uh, appeared to him, and uh, <laughs> he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? <laughs> yeah. That's what you do in those type of situations. You recognize the call. Well, see, Paul was called to be an apostle, that is, to be a minister. He wasn't called to hold a high position or to be honored by men. That was not what an, an apostle was about. What about us? As I said, every child of God is a servant of God, is, is a slave of God, and is really called for two primary things. One, of course, is to serve. You kind of want to go, duh, that's why we're called servants. And the other is to bear fruit. That is why we exist as Christians, as believers.
Well, number three, in verses one through four, Paul gives us a synopsis of the gospel. Now, we are going to learn a lot about the gospel over the next few months, Lord willing. Okay? That's kind of central theme is the gospel of God of Romans. But here he gives us a little synopsis. And uh, in verse one, Paul tells us that he's not only a slave of Christ, he's an, and an apostle. He says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. God called Paul and set him apart, marked him to preach the gospel. This is what you're going to do. He wasn't set apart to a man-made religion or to any particular denomination. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, set apart to a gospel of social justice or wel and welfare, which seems to be the delight of many today. He was set apart to the gospel of God. Now, in a couple weeks, we'll be talking about what that looks like. He's going to tell us about the power of the gospel. Paul lists three specific things concerning this gospel that he was called and set apart to preach and that we should also know as well. A, the gospel of the New Testament is the same good news of God that was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus is the gospel, but long before uh, the birth of Jesus, the gospel began. It began in the mind and in the plan of God. God foretold the coming of the gospel, His Son Jesus, through the prophets. Jesus Himself in John 5 said, you, He's talking to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures. What Scriptures is He talking about? The Old Testament. It is they that bear witness about Me. That should sound familiar to you. Just three or four weeks ago, we were looking at the two men on the road to Emmaus. What did Jesus do? He took them to Moses and the prophets to declare to them all things written in Scripture concerning Him. In other words, the Old Testament points to Jesus. The gospel was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. Well, uh, for, for the Jew, the gospel was the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. The best picture for this, for me, is Simeon and Anna there in the temple. Jesus has just been born, and God gives them something. It's in their spirit anyway. They recognize this little baby as the Messiah. That's the one they had been waiting for. for, for over four, they hadn't heard from the Lord, basically, for about 400 years the Lord had kind of gone silent, but they were waiting for the Messiah one, the Messiah, the anointed one. In Greek, it's Christ. That's what they were waiting for. And they recognized him. And, 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 and Simeon's like, Whoop, I, can, I can go in peace now. I have seen the Lord's anointed one. For the Christian, we know the Messiah that the Jew was looking for, that Messiah was no other than Jesus of Nazareth. So the gospel was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. Well, B, the gospel is the incarnation of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verses 3 and 4, Paul kind of stacks the name and titles for Jesus um, for emphasis concerning the subject of the gospel. He's God's Son, and that uh, uniquely so. His name is Jesus. That's not an uncommon name. He is the Christ. Again, that's the Greek. The, uh, the Hebrew is Messiah, uh, and it literally means the anointed one. Uh, 
And He is our Lord. He is both the subject and the author of the gospel. By Him and through Him, the gospel is created and proclaimed. He brings the good news of God to man. In fact, He's the very embodiment of the good news of God Himself. Remember what He told Philip? Philip says, oh, just show us the Father who will be satisfied. Philip, have I been with you so long you don't understand that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We'll see, the gospel contains two glorious truths that he's going to share with us here. It contains tons of glorious truths, y'all. And, and he's, going to, he's, going to, uh, you know, he's going to elaborate on those down the road. But here he gives us two things. The first is that God's Son became a man. Now, this is referring to the incarnation. Jesus came from the seed of David, Paul says. Who was David? David was the greatest king of Israel and one of the greatest ancestors of Jesus. The point is that God sent His Son into the world in human flesh. You know, what we're so familiar with. He had a human nature. And because He had a human nature, He suffered some of the same trials of life that we do. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He got tired. He got frustrated. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore He, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers, that's us, in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, He had to become human. His humanity was necessary for salvation. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, But when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Do, do you understand what's going on there? Only a man could be born under the law. It's human nature. Another reason Jesus had to become human is God had already established uh, the necessity of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed His human life and shed His human blood to cover the sins of all who would ever believe. If He were not human, this would have not been possible. Jesus had to become a man Number two, the second glorious truth is it's quite profound and, and it is so critical. Paul proclaims the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God before He came into the world. However, since His coming, He was declared to be the Son of God by two things. Two things that Paul mentions here. A, the spirit of holiness that resided in Him declared Him to be the Son of God. He was the very embodiment of holiness, of purity, of morality, and justice. His life on this earth proves the fact. He lived as a man for 30 plus years, and according to Scripture, never sinned. And that's declared in several places. My favorite is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin. There you have it. Jesus knew no sin. He caused Him to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus was completely holy, and that declared Him to be the Son of God. Second, B, the second thing that declares Jesus to be the Son of God is His resurrection from the dead. All other men are dead and gone, and the proof is demonstrated by one simple question. Well, where are they now? Where are our mothers, our fathers, our ancestors 
When they left this world, the earth never saw them again. But not Christ. He did die. He was buried. But then He arose and He walked on the earth again. And today, Jesus Christ lives forever in the presence of God. Death could not hold Him because He was the Son of God and He possessed the perfect spirit of holiness. You might remember in his very first sermon, Peter, he said, but God, and this is talking about Jesus, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's a big statement in itself. Death did not have the power to hold Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was the Son of God. Well, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God because He rose from the dead. Well, number four here, through Jesus, we receive God's grace and apostleship. Now, Paul had received both God's grace and apostleship, but here he uses the word we, which seems to be speaking for all believers, not just himself. So we're going to look at grace and apostleship. First, a grace, that includes all that God has done for us and all the wonderful blessings that He showers upon us. And there are at least four ways, there there are many more, but I'm just going to mention four, that we have received God's grace. Number one, His love from eternity past. Speaking of God, here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you see that? Before the ages began, we were given Christ Jesus, which was His purpose and His grace for our lives. So we see His love from all eternity past. Well, number two, we also see His saving us freely without cost. You're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 3, 24 says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He saves us freely. This is not a complete sentence. He saves us freely without cost to us. It costs Jesus dearly. It costs God dearly. But it costs us nothing. Number three, we see God's grace revealed to us in the providence of God. The fact that He just takes care of us day by day by day. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, but my, God shall, shall, yeah, but my God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. His mercies, his mercies are new every morning, are they not? Here's what Paul said to the church at Corinth. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, everything that we have comes from the gracious hand of God. Why do we boast as if it was otherwise? In His providence, God takes care of us. Well, the fourth way that we receive His marvelous grace is through His precious promise of eternal redemption. We're in the process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That comes from Romans 8. We are, are, are being made perfect. How many feel perfect? And Tyler, don't raise your hand this time. 
Yeah, not many hands going up when we're talking about feeling perfect, right? It just means that we're not there yet, and we won't. We're not going to reach that until either Jesus comes again or we die and go into God's presence. But we're being given in the present the glorious privilege of living with Him forever in worship and service. Paul tells the Ephesians, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. He also tells them that God has raised us up with Him, with God, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Paul is saying that in the eons to come, we will continue to marvel at the grace of God in Christ Jesus that was given to us. In other words, the gospel and the grace of God, they're never going to grow stale in heaven. You're never going to just get used to it. No, you will continuously be marveling. Well, B, let's talk about apostleship for a second. Granted, the, apost the office of apostle is closed. Okay, the apostles of Scripture, they died long ago. John MacArthur sees Paul's use of this word as God calling believers into service, which is a form of apostleship. Every person who belongs to God through faith in Christ is an apostle in a more general sense of being sent by Him into the world as His messengers, as His witness, as His apostle. In an unofficial sense, Anyone who is sent on a spiritual mission, anyone who represents the Savior and brings His good news of salvation is an apostle. Now Paul says that the, the mission of the apostle is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. That's our mission as followers of Christ, to lead others to obedience of faith. What does Paul mean by obedience of faith? This is not an easy uh, a thing to consider. We're used to considering it's just by faith, which it is. We believe, right? And we're counted righteous in God's eyes. Paul uses this short phrase at the end of the letter as well in Romans 15. Here's what he says there. The mystery which has been kept secret for so long ages past, but now in Christ is manifested according to the commandment of the eternal God... It has been made known to the nations, leading to obedience of faith. So where does salvation lead you? To the obedience of faith. A person who claims faith in Christ Jesus, but whose pattern of life is utter disobedience to God's Word, he's never been redeemed. He's living a lie. Faith that does not manifest itself in obedient living is spurious. It's worthless. We are not saved in the least by works. Hear me, we are not saved by works. No matter how seemingly good those works may be. But as already noted, we are actually saved to good works. I read Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This has just occurred to me. Does anybody have to know verse 10? For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves as a gift of God, not of works so that any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. It, it's the follow-through of our salvation. 
right? To call men to obedience of faith is actually to fulfill the Great Commission. You remember the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things I commanded you. Whoa. So evangelism, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them discipleship, everything that I commanded you. You remember Jesus is the one that said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, okay. It's not that faith plus obedience equals salvation. No. It's that obedient faith equals salvation. Or put it another way, the faith that saves is obedient faith. Don't ever forget that. Five, Paul recognizes the church at Rome. In these last couple of verses, Paul tells us four more things about those in Rome and about believers in general as well. A, believers are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now this is, uh, refers uh, both to their salvation and to the mission or the task that Jesus gives them. B, believers are also loved by God. They are held ever close to God's heart. They're counted precious and dear to Him. They are deeply loved. C, believers are called to be saints. Now, don't let that word freak you out. The word saint is a form of a Greek word, hagias, and it's used three different ways in the New Testament, depending on the context. It's translated as either holy, sanctified, or saints. Now, a basic definition of holy and sanctified is to be set apart. So what do you think a basic definition of saint is? To be set apart. When believers are called saints, they're acknowledged as being set apart or holy unto the Lord. What is it that sets us apart from the rest of the world? It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The entire world is divided into these ten, two categories by this one distinction. You're either indwelt by the Holy Spirit or you're not. Paul calls us saints because we have the Holy Spirit. Well, lastly, believers are, this is D, uh, are, they're recipients of God's grace and peace. We've already looked at ways that we receive the grace of God. Let me just read you a couple verses that talk about the peace of God. In Philippians 2.13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? There, Tyler got made fun of me this morning. Uh, there are two pieces that are, that are in play when we talk about peace. All right. He says one of them is Reese's Pieces. And I was like, no, that is not right. <laughs> it was funny to me. I thought it was. Um, no, there's two, types of, there's two types of peace. We're familiar with what Paul talks about in Philippians 4. He says, uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will fill your hearts and minds, right? The, the peace of God that passes all understanding will fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that's the peace of God. How many have ever experienced the peace of God? You're in an awful situation no way you would choose to be there, right? This is a dark valley. You do not want to walk through, but somehow you're at peace. You're calm. You're not anxious. All right? That's the peace of God. 
as great as the peace of God is, is, there's a peace that's better. Romans chapter 4, as we'll see in a few months, the entire chapter has one theme, justification by faith alone. You're justified by faith. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, right? This whole chapter I've talked about. Therefore, having been justified by faith, you have or we have peace with God. Not the peace of God. You are at peace with God. This is something of eternal significance. The peace of God really depends on us. It's when we submit to God, we receive the peace of God. This peace with God means the enmity is over. The hostility is gone. What remains is a right relationship between you and God. You are at peace with God. And that is eternal. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here when he says grace and peace to you. You you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Howard, why? Because he is our peace. He is our peace with God. Well, let's go back to my original question. What, how much of what is in Paul or what was in Paul is in you? Are you a slave of Christ? Do you belong to Him? Are you His possession for Him to do with as He desires? Are you an apostle in the sense that you recognize your calling and your commission to take the good news to the ends of the earth? Are you obedient to the faith? Are you indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Are you experiencing the grace and the peace of God? Those things characterized Paul and should characterize us as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again just for revealing yourself. Uh, Father, how gracious you are to do that. Uh, You're not a God who is simply far off, but you are close and you know us intimately. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts as each of us needs it, whatever that might be. Some need to have some peace spoken into their hearts. Others need to be at peace with you and with your Father. And so, God, I pray uh, even now that you would speak that peace in their hearts, that you would take out those hearts of stone and and give them hearts of flesh, that they may recognize Jesus for who he is. Uh, Father, died, buried, and raised again on the third day, that they might believe and become a child of yours. So, God, just speak that truth into our hearts, and we'll give you praise for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you're out there and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this whole part had an awful lot to do with the gospel. The gospel is very simple. We have been separated by God because of our sin. And Jesus says there's only one way to get back to the Father, and that is through Him. You trust in Him. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need to turn to Jesus this morning if you do not know Him. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. It's actually Him that you have sinned against. Uh, That's who the offense has been against, is against God. Ask God to forgive you of sins. Trust in what Jesus did on the cross. And God will make you His child. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll bring you into what Paul says, uh, you'll go, go from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His beloved Son. I encourage you to do that this morning. If you're a believer, like I said, there are just so many little and, and, and many points to this sermon You could be stabbed by one, and somebody over here can be stabbed by another, and and somebody else. That's that's God's doing. 
All right? You need to listen to the Spirit in your life. If He's sharing with something in you and something touched you this morning, it could be just one word that I said and, and you kind of you know, look at it like a calf at a new gate. Maybe God is just speaking to you in that one little thing. It's up to you to get it right. Go to Him. Ask Him to, to reveal Himself further to you and He will do it. Get things right with Him. I hope that you are walking with Him. I hope that you do have the peace. I hope you're at peace with God. And I also hope that you have the peace of God. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.